worry alone. Mm -hmm. There are people who can and should worry with you, um, and that they should you should express those concerns. That this is this is not going to be an easy time, and that you don't need to be sick to be better. <laughs> One can always get better than we are, and that's what we should strive to be doing. Presenting Dan Forbes Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership, hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. One of the key missions of Danforth Dialogues is to look at the lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. And there is perhaps no other person more qualified to bring us unique insights in how we have addressed this once in a hundred years global healthcare crisis. Dr. Montgomery Rice, and Dr. Walensky will also talk about the ongoing needs to improve health equity, particularly in underserved communities. Now for this month's episode, here's Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Welcome to Danforth Dialogues. As you know, each month we bring you leadership insights from a wide range of guests. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. While most of the country knows Dr. Walensky from her current role as head of the CDC, she has had a long and distinguished career in medicine and in public health, and is one of the country's foremost experts on HIV and AIDS. And prior to taking the helm of the CDC, she conducted research on developing the best strategies for vaccine delivery to underserved communities, which I'm sure was very beneficial in her current role. Welcome to the Danforth Dialogues, Dr. Walensky. Thank you so much, Dr. Montgomery Rice. I am so delighted to be here. So let's start with one of the most obvious questions. You are one of uh, three women who headed the CDC in its last 76 years. Now, for the record, I have to point out that the last five directors, there have been some women, so they've been on the, we've been going in the right direction. Uh, but you got your medical degree from Johns Hopkins. You taught at Harvard Medical School. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your journey and some of the key lessons that maybe you learned along the way that helped you prepare for this current role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the first key lessons is not is to be not to be afraid to pivot and not to be afraid to follow your passion. Um, I will say I was a first year medical school student when I walked into a lecture hall in 1991 and everyone was pouring over the newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the news that Magic Johnson had HIV. Oh yeah, I remember and, that. Um, and there was disbelief everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you fast forward a couple of years, I was a house officer in 1995, inner city Baltimore, um, and admitting patient after patient after patient that was dying of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have viral loads. We didn't have antiretroviral therapy. And that was just a time of listening, of holding hands, of providing dignity and respect and, um, and grace for people who were dying. And that December of 1995, my internship year, was when we um, when sequinavir and ritonavir were FDA approved mm -hmm. and we could finally tell people there was hope. Mm -hmm. um, and I never thought I would be an HIV doc or an mm -hmm. AIDS doc or an AIDS researcher, but it was that moment that I said, we can actually change the course of this. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to be a part of how that was going to unfold. So really not being afraid to pivot and follow your passion. And then I guess one of the other lessons is just 
people matter. Yeah. Um, your networks matter. Your your deepest friends matter. The people who have you may may have not picked out of a crowd as to be there and have your back. I remember some really hard times um, when I was on call, um, and those were the people who who actually were there mm -hmm. for you. Um, and not losing those networks. You mm -hmm. can't be in touch with everybody all the time, um, but just recognizing that those are those are the that's what matters the most. Right. Right. Thank you for. Uh, reminding me of this people matter because I was a little bit ahead of you I was in my internship year in 19 it would have been about 1991 uh, 1991 92 and I was at Grady and uh, we would split Christmas and New Year's and so I had the Christmas shift and that was when we were first seeing HIV and I will never forget Christmas Eve and actually taking care of patients who had this virus that we didn't quite know what it was. And there was no protective gear and all of those type of things. And you were watching people die of the unknown. Uh, and it really did um, remind me of how much you have to look behind the mask and see the real people. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, you also talk about pivoting and passion. So now you got three P's, yeah. pivot, passion, and people. And, and I think those are great things to um, sort of lead into my next question. Let's talk about leadership style because that's what this podcast is really trying to convey, I think, uh, how leaders perform sometimes in, in times of crisis or in times of opportunities. Because mm -hmm. I think most crises are opportunities. Can you give us a little bit of insight about how your uh, experiences have helped you to shape your leadership style? Yeah, you know, this is, as I've been thinking a lot about this in leadership, and, and in fact, as I was even thinking about it as I was um, taking on more and more leadership at Mass General, one of the things I think people fail to realize as they're aspiring to leadership is that leadership is a selfless act. Mm -hmm. um, once yeah. you, you really have to be sort of, um, you have to have given what you can to yourself. You, you can give to yourself as a leader too, but really what you're doing as a leader is leading for everyone else. And you mm -hmm. have to give it back to everyone else um, and their needs and their mission and what, what is best for an organization and the people of it is what leadership is about. It's not about power. It is about making sure you're heading in the right place for the people who are doing, for the people who you are leading. And I think that that's actually critically important. So many people think it is about the position or the self, mm -hmm. um, and it's not. It's about giving to other people. Um, the other thing I think that people don't realize is that um, conflict avoidance is impossible as a leader. <laughs> right, I agree with that. <laughs> and um, so if you are one who avoids conflict, if you want to be a leader, you really do need to be able, and I, I don't love conflict, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right, I, I, right, right. But it is the case that you will have to make tough decisions um, and that everybody will not agree. And it is those decisions that are going to matter. So how do you make those decisions? How do you surround yourself with the information that you need the people that you need to make those hard decisions where some people you know are going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe finally in that, I would say um, two things that I say very often to my agency. I learned them in training. Never worry alone. Mm -hmm. 
um, there are people who can and should worry with you, um, mm -hmm. and that they should you should express those concerns. That this is this is not going to be an easy time, and that you don't need to be sick to be better. <laughs> One can always get better than we are, and that's what we should strive to be doing. Very good lessons. And and let me while we're still on leadership. Can you tell us some things that you maybe have learned from others? All, none of us get to these positions on our own. We've had mentors, we've had partners, we've had peers, and we have had sponsors. Yes. So can you give us a little bit of insight of maybe what you've learned from others? Yeah, um, maybe I'll tell you one that's just really so salient to me. Um, I was a, a first-year fellow, and I was looking for a research plan. And um, I found this, this mentor who I had been told would be an amazing mentor, but I didn't really know him, and he didn't know me. And basically, I said, I like math. Can I do some quantitative modeling with you? Um, and he said, sure. So he kind of believed in me before I had really done anything to have him believe in me for. Um, and the next conversation I had with him, I had to tell him I was pregnant. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really pretty confident that that was going to, to um, uh, derail. So de derail. <laughs> but that's fair. Um, any trust or any vision or give my project to somebody else. And, and I was really, I've actually written about this. Mm -hmm. I was really nervous about in, that interaction. And the first thing he said to me when I like my lip was quivering and the whole thing, and I said, I'm pregnant. And he said, how are you feeling? That's so exciting. Yeah, so nice, nice, nice. And so it was that sort of caring about the person and not sort of saying that I couldn't do anything because the, I was going to, you know, be having a baby and, mm -hmm. and need to give a little bit to my family at that time. So that was really an instrumental moment for me is to, like, you know, keep the belief, keep the faith, because mm -hmm. I was able to deliver baby and deliver project. But, you know, yeah, yeah, um, right. And so that, you know, so it really is about fostering others. And the other thing is, um, you know, there are so many opportunities. As you get to be um, more and more in leadership positions, there are so many opportunities that come your way mm -hmm. um, that you can't necessarily take advantage of. And so the whole sponsorship, pay it forward. Say, well, I can't do it, but I have this great young person who would love to be on that podium. Mm -hmm. um, and I promise he or she will deliver. Mm -hmm. It's really, um, those are really fun because mm -hmm. um, you actually get to promote somebody else to, to the spotlight. I'm, I'm so glad you are personalizing some of this conversation because I know that there are a lot of young women who are going to be listening to this podcast. I finished my fellowship and took my first job and was pregnant when I showed up. Uh, and was very, very concerned about how people would respond. Uh, the person who was in partnership with me was not as happy. Um, and, and that was a challenge. I had to do, uh, we, were, we were every other weekend call because we were starting an IVF center. And yeah. he did make me do 12 weekends straight <laughs> for that six weeks I was going to be off. And, uh, and so, you know, everybody is not as... Um, empathetic, uh, but uh, we made it through. 
And so, you know, I always tell people, I'm going to write this book one day. You can have it all, just not at the same time, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. That's right. right. You can have it all, just not at the same time. But there is, I always tell women, uh, there's no good time to have a baby. There's no bad time That's to have exactly a baby. So you just do it when it, when it happens, uh, because we do need more babies in the world. So <laughs> I also uh, say <laughs> that, you know, it is a juggle. It's an embarrassment of riches. It's a juggle. Just don't forget which balls are glass. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, let's Let's talk about the CDC and, and, and this pandemic that, you know, I don't know where we are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Pandemic, endemic, still risk. Uh, but you took the ham of the CDC right in the middle of a pandemic. I can clearly remember, Dr. Walensky, uh, every morning I, my routine would be I would turn on, the C, turn on CNN, and there were multiple times that I saw you there. Uh, not at the, it, when you were still at Mass General. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, it definitely provided me with confidence to have an infectious disease expert who was on the front line talking about what was really happening uh, in the hospitals, the burnout of our providers, uh, the burnout. And I, I'm not just talking about physicians. I'm talking about nurses. I'm talking about everybody who touches a patient from the time they walk in the door. I look at all of those people as providers. You were always champion for how we should protect them and think about them, so thank you for that. So you had to hit the ground running when you were convinced to take this job, I'm sure. <laughs> so how did you prepare? You know, um, thanks for, thank you for saying that, and maybe I'll just take this moment to thank all students, staff, in healthcare mm -hmm. and in public health in this moment because this has been a brutal three years and yeah. we got a lot of those praises early on. We're, those are, we're hearing less of those, so I just want to continue to provide them because it's, it's been, um, we need you and you have been, you have exactly. been heroes. So, so let me just say that. Um, you know, as you said, I came from working full steam. Mm -hmm. We were in, you know, incident management. We were in emergency operations. And it wasn't as if I said, okay, I'm going to take a few months off and I'm going to come and right. prepare to do this. Mm -hmm. We literally were, um, I was trying to figure, do the juggle of the transition team as well as continuing to run the division at about the same, during the same time, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, so I did a lot of work on the transition team. One of the things that has been interesting for me is to take on this role in this moment needed a massive amount of expertise in dimensions I was aware of and even unaware of. Mm -hmm. um, the legal policy intersection, the congressional intersection, the clinical intersection, um, knowing the people, trying to start and do this remotely with an agency of 12,000 who I was not going to get to convene in one room. Um, there were so many, the communications, right. there were so many things that I think, and, and the public health partners, mm -hmm. there were so many things that um, I did not, those connections and remember people, those networks, some of which I really did have and some of which I didn't. And what I really needed to do and have continued to spend the last two years doing is fostering those places where I have had less of those connections, mm -hmm. relying again on the network and the connections that I had and fostering those places where I was like, I really need, I need you to trust me. I need to be able to trust mm -hmm. you. How do we do this? How do we create this partnership together? And mm -hmm. that's in a lot of different dimensions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things and um, that happens to us when we take on new roles, um, 
people, you know, I think sometimes people think you wake up in these roles and you have all the skill sets. Uh, wrong. Uh, and I remember when the first time that I became a dean, and, and what I recognized was that I really did not necessarily understand the undergraduate medical education curriculum and how it was put together and how they decided what the, you know, how people, they were going to transition. Of course, I had lived through it as a medical student, but there is really uh, a science right. to how you put together curriculum or how you need to create a learning continuum. So that was a skill set that I had to step outside of my comfort zone to get with, and I had to go to people who were not the dean, but who were experts in that area to say, okay, I don't know. Right. Help me. What was that moment for you at the CDC? So first, let me say that that in and of itself is a sign of leadership, because mm -hmm. we need to be able to say, there are things I don't know. Mm -hmm. I am here to lead this, and I have like this, this blind spot here that I need some help filling in. And that, I think, is, is also a, a true leadership um, characteristic. Um, you know, I had done, in my academic career, I had done a huge amount of talking to scientific audiences. I could present an abstract like the best of them, right? <laughs> um, I had also had this role for about six months as a CNN medical correspondent, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. you talked about. And my dinner table had always been, um, my husband's a physician, so mm -hmm. we talked science at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And in fact, my kids kind of talk more science than the average teenagers yeah. might. Mm -hmm. um, what was becoming clear, and literally, as soon as I started, we were doing three times a week White House press conferences. And my academic tongue mm -hmm. was not for the American people. Mm -hmm. um, it, we needed to not use words like heterogeneous and cohort <laughs> and longitudinal. And those were just yeah. like, that was my everyday language mm -hmm. um, in my academic world and even at my dinner table. And so I really did spend some time listening to, and this is painful as you can imagine, listening to yourself in Congress, Oof. watching your own videos to say like, we need a different word for that. Or, um, and, and had a lot of help and support to say like that, you know, would have come out, you know, would have preferred a different way to have said that. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that was really interesting in this time is science evolved in a way that was obviously gray. We know as scientists, mm -hmm. science is gray. And I had said, well, I'm going to lead with science. And to me, that meant it's going to be gray, but we're going to iterate as we learn and learn more. Um, that wasn't obvious to the American people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had scientists debating in, in the front Real pages time, front page, yep. um, or on the evening news, mm -hmm. what usually is for a podium at an academic conference and never makes it to the news. Mm -hmm. And that is hard for the American people to digest what side they might be on. Should I be doing this or should I be doing that? Um, and that led to some distrust, mm -hmm. even though you had to make a decision because a leader has to make a decision. You know, um, even though I know you were your, your situation was played out on national television, uh, and, and, and thank you for what you were doing uh, and what you continue to do. Uh, but believe me, in the halls of academia, my, my uh, faculty who are in the audience knows that we had a scientific committee that we were meeting every week to talk about what we should do, looking at guidelines from multiple places, because we recognized we had to get people back into at least a hybrid situation, because you can't educate and train medical students on Zoom. No. Now, no. you can deliver some parts, but and you also had this 
really um, the, the challenges that you had all your clinical people there on the front line, and then you had your administrative people who could be from home right. uh, doing stuff. And so it, it, it was a challenge for all of us. And, and thank goodness, though, that science did pay out where we were able to get the uh, vaccines. Yes. So tell me the moment when, we rec when you recognize in this continuum that we were going to have a vaccine um, that we could put on the give to people and it was going to make a difference. What did that feel like for you? And do you, do you remember that? Uh, I remember where I was. Right. I can right. tell you the block I was on because uh -huh. I was walking. Um, so this had been, you know, it was March 6th when we had our first several Biogen cases. Um, and I'll just sort of say at the time, I had um, the HIV retrovirus conference was coming to Boston. People had landed. The sign over the Heinz Convention Center was half up. And um, we had made some phone calls and said, we actually have some cases in Boston. We don't think that thousands of people from all over the world should actually be gathering here. Um, that was a nearly impossible call. If you sort of un rewind what happened during those next several months, we had some of our, our staff, our physicians were getting sick. We had clinicians in the ICU being as patients. We had a morgue truck outside of the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, we had 14 ICUs when we normally had four or five. It was, it was hard and grim and scary. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not gonna remember the date. It was you know late November, early December. And I was walking into the hospital because I really wanted to be there for my faculty. I was walking into the hospital. Um, it was raining in Boston. And my phone buzzed, and it was the CNN alert. And I'd like to say that I was still the Mass General Chief. People have said, well, why is the CDC director getting the CNN alert on her phone? I was still the Mass That's General Chief. Right. I was not the, CNN, uh, the CDC director. But you were on the transition self, and so you were No, I hadn't known. You didn't even join the transition. No, 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 oh. no. no this was 2020. Okay. Oh, that's right, Lord. Okay. Yeah, so, um, and uh, so, uh, I saw the I saw the thing on my phone and it said 95% effective. Oh, and wonderful. I welled up and I said, we're gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um so it was I was not necessarily I was was not on service that month. I wasn't taking care of patients mm -hmm. that month. I wasn't gonna be the first one to get it, but I thought we're gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. Now one of the things that was really interesting at the time, and you mentioned this in the opener, is I had my roots working in HIV. I actually knew in my heart, and it was my, one of my last academic papers that I wrote before taking this, that the, the, how well the vaccine worked mattered so much less than whether people were willing to take it. There you go. And um, so we had published a paper in Health Affairs on, I'd actually prefer a vaccine that worked 70% of the time if everybody would just roll up their sleeves and get it. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, and we could do those trade-offs and we were really advocating for investing in the platform and the science and the information so that the rollout of it would be smooth because there was so much, and the, the implementation science, there was so much invested in the, in the basic science to get us the vaccine. And I felt like we were not investing enough in making sure the, the runway was set so that when that vaccine was ready, people were prepared to roll up their sleeves. But you know, there were a lot of people in partnership with you and, and thinking the same thing. The fact that we could take the HIV trial network 
converted to the COVID-19 network. Exactly. And I have to give uh, a shout out to Fred Hutchison Group and et cetera, who yeah. immediately came to the four HBCU medical schools and said, look, you all have connections with the HIV trial network. We need for you all to become a trial, vaccine trial networks. And we were able to turn that around in six weeks and be able to do trials because we knew that we needed to enroll people who were disproportionately impacted, and those were people of color. And so it was a lot of background work that had been going on for years for this to be able to have us to pivot that way. Now, one of the things as we talk about each of these, one of the words that comes to uh, my mind, and I would like for you to, to give us a couple of examples of courageous leadership, because I can imagine what it took uh, when you were thinking about that call back when that HIV um, oh. conference was going on and you were telling people. And let me tell you, that had uh, tentacles everywhere. I happened to be at a conference a couple of weeks later where someone had been at that conference who became positive. And I had to get that call and I was at work in the middle and that someone told me that I had been around someone had been exposed and I had to sort of shut down for about 10 days to make sure that I wasn't gonna be impacted. And so courage to be able to make those hard calls and to tell people, uh, you know, when my mother would say, call a spade a spade and have to make some decisions. Tell us some examples of uh, courageous leadership. It doesn't have to necessarily be tied to COVID-19 because you've had a life outside of COVID-19 yeah. also. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, that one is was was a big one mm -hmm. um, because, quite honestly, having a handful of cases in Boston. I mean, what what we were talking about is thousands of international leaders coming together at a conference, and literally some had already landed and some were in the air. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know if I was right, mm -hmm. um, but I knew the price of being wrong could be so high. Um, and so I, really what I was thinking about is which is the best way to be wrong? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you're going to be wrong and send a bunch of people home because you were, you know, you were um, overprotecting over Overprotective. Mm -hmm. Or if you were going to be wrong and a whole bunch of people were going to get sick. And I just, I sort of made the call and said, I'd rather be wrong yeah. um, by people being safe. Mm -hmm. um, and and maybe history could have judged me and said, wow, this you know, <laughs> woman made the call and mm -hmm. you know, and this conference got canceled. So it was it, there was a lot of uncertainty. I also made calls to our local schools, mm -hmm. you know, um, and said, <laughs> my kids didn't find out about that until right, months right. later. Right, right, right. <laughs> and said, I don't know how this is going to go, but mm -hmm. if this were influenza, I, you know, I. Think think that we should really start protecting. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I, as I said, I don't, at, at the time, I honestly did not know whether it was, I lost a lot of sleep over it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of conversations at home about, you know, how this could completely go sideways if I'm mm -hmm. wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. Maybe the other one just sort of recently is the review of the agency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the agent, there are 12,000 heroes who are working for the CDC mm -hmm. every single day, and they have been through this pandemic. Sure. Um, and, you know, maybe every call before I got there and even since I've been there has been, you know, not exact. But I would say what I, but, you know, 
they are the heroes of public health. They are among the heroes of public health. They've been doing extraordinary science. And they, you know, with a lot of support and community, and 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 it, not they alone, but 600 million shots in arms in a year. Yes, yeah. I mean, never done. Mm -hmm. um, never had to tackle a pandemic in its 76-year history because, right. like this one, never had to tackle a public health challenge that affects literally 330 million Americans and and you know millions more around the world. So. Um, I did. I had the, the the need to sort of say we are going to address some of the things that fell short in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. What I didn't have the opportunity to do is say, and these are all the things we've done really well. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and so um, I think people wanted to hear these are the ways we are going to act to improve. We're going to be the CDC of the future. Mm -hmm. um, but the people of the agency were feeling like we really also need to hear all the ways that we've done well, and mm -hmm. they have. They've been extraordinary. Ways they've, they've done, done outstanding jobs, and and also creating opportunities for greater partnership outside of the realm of the CDC, reaching out to academic institutions, developing public-private partnerships, what I always say, you know, uh, pharma is not bad, okay? There's opportunity to do partnership with all of those entities Absolutely. to move opportunities forward. So um, I have the CDC director here, so I gotta focus on um, the pandemic. And let me just ask this question. Where do you think we are in the, in, in the continuum? Uh, Pandemic, endemic, no emic. I mean, I don't even know if that's a word. Uh, but as we enter into this third year, so what is your assessment of where we are? Um, this is the crystal ball question. Yes, exactly. And, and I, and I have no idea. I see snowflakes. I see snowflakes in the crystal ball. Yeah. Um, you know what? Here's what I would say is we have now about 97% of, we believe, Americans have seen some form of this virus themselves mm -hmm. um, and have some baseline protection just from the, the natural immunity of having mm -hmm. seen it. Many of those, in addition, have not only gotten their primary series of vaccine, but multiple boosters to continue to protect them, to, to raise and bolster that protection and expand the breadth of that protection mm -hmm. with this bivalent um, vaccine. I think there's a lot of protection out there, which is great news. Um, what we don't know is, as we've seen, and I'm going to use medical terms here again, the amplitude of this rise and fall over the last three years. We don't know, and it will probably continue to rise and fall, whether this will be the season that it staples out as one of those respiratory viruses that we see really only during respiratory virus season. Mm -hmm. um, I think many of us are hopeful that that will be the case. But, but we don't know if this is going to be the season or if there will still be yet another variant that leads mm -hmm. us to a challenge in a sort of off respiratory season. Now, one of the challenges that we're having in this current moment is that there has been a lot of um, respiratory viruses that haven't reared their ugly heads in, in big ways over the last two or three years because of all the mitigation that we have been mm -hmm. doing. So about 80% of children get RSV every year. Every year, yeah. And they didn't for the last two or three years. Right. 
Thankfully, RSV is coming down now. I'm really grateful for that. But the, we didn't actually see increased severity per child for RSV. What we saw is everybody started getting it at once because they hadn't had some natural protection over the last two or three years. So we saw a lot of volume mm -hmm. of patients coming in with RSV. And the same is true for flu. Mm -hmm. um, it does look like we're having an earlier flu season. We haven't yet seen it be a more severe flu season, but the numbers are high. And the numbers are high because we don't have a lot of that protection because of, unfortunately, some lack of confidence in our vaccines when this year it really does look like it's a good match. Mm -hmm. And even when it's not, it prevents severe infection. Mm -hmm. um, so we really do need to get more, more vaccine confidence for flu and for COVID. So, you know, we, we, I'm glad you're talking about viruses other than COVID-19. I think we were lulled into sort of a comfort zone because there was a lot of things we were doing to mitigate COVID, and we didn't see, particularly in children's hospitals, the rate of people being admitted with RSV and other things. I guess, you know, you're an infectious disease expert. If you had to say to people, okay, what are the vaccines that you really ought to take, regardless of COVID-19, right? I mean, we want you to do your COVID-19, that really just have you on a continuum of self-care, because that's how I sort of look at vaccines. They sort of are, are preventive measures. It's a part of our self-care. Yeah, I think we have been, um, we have been, been challenged by our own successes. Mm -hmm. So if you talk to people in my parents' generation, they tell you the story of the massive fear related to polio. Mm -hmm. Children, their neighbors were getting paralytic polio and their parents were petrified. And as soon as those vaccines were available, they were the first in line. Um, and I see a lot of people nodding. It's like that, that they were petrified. Um, I've seen cases of measles as an infectious disease doc. They're not, but most of the public has not, yeah, right? Yeah. Most clinicians have never seen a case of measles. Um, it's massively infectious. Mm -hmm. um, we currently now have an outbreak of measles in Ohio. We had our first case of paralytic polio in this country in years in New York. Mm -hmm. And right now we are seeing the frailty of the fact that people have, um, because they haven't seen these cases, because they haven't experienced that fear of what can really happen, when we are not a well-vaccinated community, um, across, and it's it's not just like, is the country at 95% vaccinated? It is, is my local community vaccinated? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have 16 um, pediatric vaccines that everyone, every yeah. child should be getting. Yeah. That includes MMR, it includes polio, it includes hepatitis B, um, chickenpox, many others, varicella. Um, we need to be getting our children protected because we just don't wanna see those cracks. But you know, I had forgotten that we had stopped getting smallpox vaccines. What a right. So, so when they start talking about monkeypox, you know, I, I I I can still see the area on my arm. It never faded, and I it it was a light bulb moment when I recognized, oh, this is why young people are not protected because we stopped smallpox vaccines. I don't know, nineties, whenever, yeah. whenever, whenever it was, and so that protection is not there. And so, anything that we should be thinking differently about—is it still called monkeypox? We're calling something? it mpox. Okay, mpox. I knew it was something that I saw. Yeah. Okay, uh, is there anything we should be thinking about that differently? 
Right, so what we're really doing now, um, we are in a place now where we have seen fewer and fewer cases of MPOX, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, as those cases are coming down, we are still seeing more of them, even though there are a few of them, in disproportionately black and Latino communities. Um, we have also seen that while we rolled out the vaccine, we saw less vaccination disproportionate. And so where we have more cases, we have less vaccination. Mm -hmm. um, and we are still working to get more vaccination to those black and brown communities for exactly that reason. Now, what we don't know is, how, and the protection looks good from this vaccine, I'm really good, happy good. to say. Mm -hmm. um, what we don't know is, and, and the rest of the world it does look like is getting, you know, seeing fewer and fewer MPOX um, cases, though we still have um, endemic cases mm -hmm. in Nigeria, Congo, and other right. places. We don't know whether there will be another resurgence. So mm -hmm. we really are asking, especially um, the MSM community who might be at high, mm -hmm. who is at higher risk in this outbreak, of course, um, and those communities that haven't yet rolled up their sleeves to go ahead and roll up their sleeves to protect themselves. Right, right, right. So um, thank you for that. I mean, I, I know we went down a little science rabbit, but uh, <laughs> rabbit hole, but I think it's important. I mean, you can't have somebody who has the expertise that you have as an infectious disease uh, expert and not ask you some of those questions. So I want to get back to our connection of leadership and uh, our workforce. So Morehouse School of Medicine was founded to address the physician shortage, uh, increase uh, access, eliminate health disparities. Uh, it started out thinking about physicians and diverse workforce related to that. It clearly moved to all type of providers, biomedical scientists, public health leaders, and who would be diverse. Tell me why you believe that, uh, and if you believe, and I, and I think you do, uh, that there is importance in having a diverse healthcare workforce to address some of the major challenges that we're seeing in health disparities. Yeah, I, well, I mean, yes, you had me at hello there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, it's critical, right? right. Because um, people really wanna understand when communities really want to talk to people who understand their community. Mm -hmm. And I have said we need a public health and medical workforce that is as diverse as the communities we serve. And that may even mean that, like, Chicago is different than Atlanta, mm -hmm. or New York is different than LA, mm -hmm. right? We really do need to understand the local context, and I think that that is critically important. Um, to give you a sense, the de Beaumont Foundation, and this is just public health, not medicine, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the de Beaumont Foundation has um, done an analysis that demonstrated that we are about 80,000 mm -hmm. public health workers short. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Um, and so when you think about how we are going to develop a public health workforce that is as diverse as the communities we serve, we absolutely need that diversity of workforce. The other thing, um, and this is, I'll put back on my infectious disease clinician hat for mm -hmm. a little while, is as we were watching, you and I, as we were you know, in training and watching mm -hmm. what was happening as the HIV epidemic was unfolding here in this country, it went early on, as do so many infectious diseases, from a white community to a black community. Yes. Yeah. That's what happens in infectious diseases. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it went, COVID-19 went from people who traveled on air, airplanes and cruise ships mm -hmm. to black and brown communities. Mm -hmm. That's what happens in infectious diseases. And we, the, the you know, one of the very faint silver linings here is of this pandemic, which has been so tragic in so many ways, is that now America sees that. Right, right, right. America did have to sit still. Exactly. For a moment. And watch. And watch. 
And, and we are seeing some of, again, civil linings, that we are seeing more opportunities for uh, institutions like Morehouse School of Medicine to be pulled into partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, even though we were working on health disparities and health disparities research for years, people are seeing the opportunities that we bring by having such a diverse uh, set of biomedical scientists and clinician scientists who can really have the trust of the community to move toward getting people enrolled in clinical trials, having people to think differently about clinical trials. I always tell people you have to have the message, right? But the messenger matters. Absolutely. And the content has to be consistent and it has to be relevant to that community that you're trying to reach. Um, we, we usually would have a lot of our MPH students in the audience there in uh, finals. This is no. kind of the time <laughs> of that. But I know many of them would look at this, uh, this uh, filming, uh, this pod, listen to this podcast. So can you give them a little bit of advice to prepare themselves to be leaders in our industry mm. of the future, particularly since we know right now we have a shortage of public health um, professionals? And that's only going to continue if we don't do something actionable about it. Yeah, I think probably the most important lesson, because, you know, I, if, you, if I look back at my career and say when I was an <coughs> MPH student, um, did I aspire to be the CDC director? That, that was, I mean, it was on my radar. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I didn't know I was heading in that direction. Um, but what I did know is to follow my passion. And that when it was 11 o'clock at night and you had the choice of doing something, and my passion was access to HIV drugs. Like, mm -hmm. why is it that the patients who needed it the most weren't getting it? Mm -hmm. Why is it that people were saying that this $20,000 a year regimen was not, quote unquote, worth it at the time? Mm -hmm. and, and that was just not right, period. It wasn't right. And at 11 o'clock at night, um, I could either go to bed or like keep reading and keep drilling down and you keep drilling down if it's your passion. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't necessarily do that because you want to do it, be a leader. But mm -hmm. what I would say is if you make a difference little and then you make a difference bigger and then you make a difference bigger than that, then people start noticing and people start following. And that's how you kind of develop into a leader. Right. And so for our seasoned leaders or people who are aspiring for leadership, top three things that you would tell them to make them better leaders today. Listen. Ooh, I like that. Um, perhaps even listen more than talk. Mm -hmm. um, and follow your passion, because it is the case at 11 o'clock at night, um, if you are not passionate about what you do, you're going to put on your pajamas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it, that really... Um, and then um, I would say as you're doing more and more to um, foster the next generation. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, um, and, and one might say as an MPH student, well, I'm the next generation, there is nobody, you know, I'm, I'm sort of low on the totem pole here. But there is a high school student, mm -hmm. there is a medical student, there is an eighth grader out there who you can inspire mm -hmm. um, and who want to be you, even though you feel like you want to be somebody, <laughs> you know, you want to climb. So, so um, there is always that inspiring the next generation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Walensky, for taking the time to uh, personalize the uh, opportunity for us to get to know you as a leader, to understand your leadership style, to see what drives your passion. And so pivot passion and people. people. We know that that 
uh, it matters to you. You said listening so many times. Uh, you shared vulnerabilities that we all have to share as leaders and how we, you use those to make yourself better. Uh, we appreciate you joining us on uh, the Danforth Dialogue. We're so honored, and I know that you have a busy schedule, but taking the time to do this really does matter. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was really my pleasure to do. Um, and let me just end in the way I was earlier and just say thank you to all of you for, for being here, for sticking with it. You are our future. Um, we need you. Um, and there is so much brightness and so much potential um, ahead. So thank you very much. In closing, we always offer three thoughts on leadership. Today we begin with great leaders are courageous. Dr. Walensky is a perfect example of this attribute. Not only did she have the courage to take over the nation's top public health role in the midst of a global pandemic, but she also led the organization to alter its approach and make the necessary changes to get us on the path to finally ending this pandemic. We're gonna get there. Second, great leaders self-correct. There are times when you have to look in the mirror and recognize that you need to make personal and professional changes if you want to be an effective leader. Sometimes those changes are minor, and other times they may be major. But pretty much every time, the inability to take that personal accountability will lead to failure for you and the organizations that you are leading. So self-correction is always important. And finally, Great leaders can take the heat and stay the course. It's not easy being in the firestorm, as I'm sure Dr. Walensky will attest. That is why you need to be courageous. But great leaders don't wilt. They hang in there and they get the job done. And that's just what we're seeing with the CDC. Well, we've come to the end of another Danforth Dialogue and I hope you've enjoyed our conversations this year. We wish all of you a wonderful holiday period and a happy new year. We will return in 2023 and have some fabulous guests on the docket. In the meantime, thanks to everyone for tuning in. And as always, we wish you good health and great success in all you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu.